Welcome to Prima's 2017 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education and Training at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Michael Brave will discuss managing career arrest-related death risk. Mr. Brave is the President of Law International Corporation and the former President of the International Force Institute Incorporation. He is also the National Litigation Counsel for Taser International Incorporation, as well as a certified master taser instructor and legal advisor to the Taser Training Board. Michael was first certified as a source electronic control device instructor in 1983, an ECD instructor in 1992, and a Taser ECD master instructor in 2003. His experience includes involvement in a wide range of comprehensive law enforcement and private security risk and liability litigation management services, including training programs, policy development and review, liability and risk assessments, training appraisals, department audits, and post-critical incident analysis. Mr. Brave has also served as a litigation consultant and an expert witness in state and federal civil rights issues. We will also be joined by Taekwon Gilbert, a member of Prima's education and training team. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Michael, thank you for joining us for today's Prima podcast. Let's get started. What do you mean by less than one, on average, career arrest-related death for all involved? Well, when you, when you look at arrest-related deaths or temporal arrest-related deaths or even firearms deaths, for that matter, that relate to law enforcement, they happen so rarely, even though we hear about them in the media every single day, that the average person involved with it, and that could be the involved officers, involved supervisors, the trainers of the officers, the incident investigators, the command staff, the decision makers, the prosecution investigators, the prosecutors, the medical examiner investigators, the medical examiners, the decision makers down the road, whether it be city council, county board, etc., will will run into one of these, especially with specific facts, on average less than once per career. They are so rare that they, and I'll give you the numbers in a few minutes, but because of that, you can't expect officers or anybody else for that matter to have in-depth knowledge as though they have spent thousands of hours researching the foundational elements or other attributes or aspects of a particular form or type or contributor or cause of such arrest-related deaths. The briefest point is, for everybody involved in this, from officer all the way through decision maker making a decision to either prosecute, praise, or terminate, or civil lawsuit on the officer, they happen less than once per career on average, and then they're, therefore they're so rare that they're hard to prepare for and they're hard to investigate. What are the numbers, the incidents, and the frequency of arrest-related deaths? Okay, unlike what you see in the media... Use of force by law enforcement in the United States, and as well as Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, and other countries similar, are very rare, meaning, or at least rare. However, the first thing is, those terms, rare, very rare, almost never, zero, etc., are not defined anywhere in the literature. But the numbers are real simple. For every 71 encounters, in other words, for every 71 people that a police officer in the United States encounters there will be one use of force or threatened use of force. 
then for every 1,000 uses of force, there will be one temporal death. So if you want the real numbers, you can look at it this way. And these are all approximate. There is scientific, medical, and epidemiological, which basically means field study research and papers on this. But here are the basic numbers. For every 32,000 contacts by police officers with citizens, there will be one death. For every 14,000 arrests, there will be one death. For every 600 to 1,000 uses of force, there will be one death. Now, bear in mind, there's only one use of force for every 71 encounters. And then for jail detentions, for every 700 people detained in jail, there will be one death. Those are the raw numbers, and those are the ones that have been found to be true over the last two or three decades in the Again, the literature that I just cited. What are the known causes of ARDs? Well, see, that's part of the problem is because these things happen so rarely, and there is literature on this, but sometimes you have to dig for it. Additionally, the, the literature that exists, a lot of people don't do the research because it takes so long. But some of the known causes are drug and alcohol use, either acute or, or long-term, because long-term abuse also does cause death or contribute to death. There's, well, okay, catecholaminergic or stress exertional death. In other words, the body just becomes so overstressed and stress on the heart that it results in death. And there are a couple of excellent papers on that because basically what needs to be remembered there is the human heart stress, all stressors work on the heart the same way meaning if the person exerts themselves, if they're under emotional stress, if they're under uh, muscular stress, if they're under, let's say they've been involved in the domestic, they're going to be stressed because of that. If they fight with the police or run from the police, all of those stressors affect the heart in the same way, and all of those can cause or contribute to death. Then, of course, we also have genetic abnormalities in hearts such as long QT, such as cardiomyopathy. There's all kinds of different types of cardiac problems that can cause or contribute to death. Then we have excited delirium syndrome, which that's one name for it, but if you go back to the key author Gary Vilk paper from, I think, 2010, you'll notice there's actually about seven or eight different kinds of this. There's serotonin syndrome, there's agitated delirium, uh, as John Peters at the Institute for prevention of incontinence, death cause it calls it. He calls it agitated, chaotic events. So, so that is there. Then we also have SUDEP, sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. Then we have sickle cell exertional death. Then we have death attempted to be causal or contributory by various force options, such as chemical irritants (OCCN, CS, or a combination), electronic weaponry neck restraints, or other forms of force-related death, such as positional asphyxia, weight force, restraint, etc., which is believed to cause death, although the current scientific literature states that it doesn't. However, it still appears in court decisions. It appears in consent decrees that there's a possibility of it, so therefore you must plan against it, which in a way is a good way, but that alone we could talk about for 30 minutes as to why the guidance to police either policy, training, et cetera, has not kept up with the science developments or the scientific developments or statements in the peer-reviewed literature. And that applies to a number of these that we just talked about.
What are the inherent concerns with such rare ARDs? The biggest concern is like with anything else, since they are so rare, uh, everybody involved in it is not expected to have full depth of knowledge, and therefore they make mistakes. Here, here's the two examples that I give, and I, I use videos to show this. Let's start from the beginning. How many hours of training does the average police officer have in the United States? And it's 600 hours. Now, they may or may not have some college education or a community college. They may or may not have uh, education in the area of criminal justice, et cetera, but they have very little training in anything related to arrest-related deaths, usually. In other words, the average officer has a high school degree, maybe some college that may or may not be related to law enforcement, and then 600 hours of training, then FTO, field training officer, then annual or two years, whatever, additional training. But they have very little training on anything related to this. Now, compare that to an emergency room physician who has four years of college, four years of medical school, residency, internship, and then they become a medical doctor. Okay. We expect our, our, the media and others expect, and critics and plaintiff's attorneys expect our officers to do act perfectly in all these scenarios and guarantee a positive outcome. Now, let's use my medical example. The emergency room doctor in a big medical emergency room facility, etc. Let's say I'm his director and I go to him and say, okay, you've got all this training, you've got all this staff, you've got all this equipment. Great. At 2 o'clock, you're going to do a heart transplant. He's a doctor. He's a emergency room doctor. He's in a hospital. He has all this equipment. But when I tell him he's doing a heart transplant in a couple of hours, what is he going to tell me? Not in this lifetime. It's not going to happen because they've never been trained in it. In other words, less than once per career event, and they're expected to take care of it, do it correctly with an optimal outcome, free of criticism, or to look at this another way. All right. A lot of people out there have motor vehicle licenses. They drive vehicles. Okay. As do police officers. Great. Well, you're, you're very good at vehicle operation. And here you go. Here are the keys to my fully armed Apache helicopter. Don't mess it up. Okay, what is the outcome of that Apache helicopter flight going to be? It's going to crash. Because, again, less than once per career. So the, the problem here is, is that a lot of these areas have huge amounts of learning curve, very high, like climbing a mountain learning curve. And so because of that, when they deal with them less than once per career, no one who deals with these can be expected to deal so perfectly. Now, on top of that, what happens is after the incident occurs, then in a lot of cases, such as the medical examiner or the coroner, feel that they're not allowed to go and talk to people who actually know this because the critics are whining about, well, you're going to get undue influence from the wrong people. I hear this constantly. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was a specific temporal death, temporal use of a electronic weapon, and the medical examiner proudly put in her, or mentioned to the news media that published this, well, I intentionally did not talk to the manufacturer or any of the scientists because I didn't want to be unduly influenced. Okay, well, guess what her opinion was, and guess what was wrong with it. And, of course, she didn't know what was wrong with it because she had not done the research, she did not actually speak to and get reference materials from the people that know. Another example is in investigations. Investigating these types of deaths is 
difficult because if you're a department investigator or a prosecution investigator or a medical examiner investigator, if you've never investigated one of these before, you, it's not that they're bad investigators. It's just that if you've never done it before, you can't expect to get a perfect investigation out of them. And again, perfect investigation is identifying, capturing, collecting all of the objective evidence that is available and making it available for the decision makers later on to have a full, complete, objective picture of what occurred so they can do the scientific analysis for cause and contribution to that death. Well, I've been involved with hundreds of these for a couple of decades now. I have never, ever seen what I even consider a level B investigation, let alone a level A investigation. And again, you can't really blame the investigators for that because when you're deposing the investigator or present at the investigator's deposition, all right, investigator, how many of these have you experienced, have you done in the past? And they'll say, well, I've done lots of deaths. No, no, no. First, how many arrest-related deaths? Then, how many arrest-related deaths with these particular issues involved? That, so you do the drill down, and you, you get down to realize that they've never done this before. Did you utilize any checklists to do your investigation? No, I didn't know any existed. Okay. And those are the kind of problems that you run into. And you run into, and I basically run into them quite often. And the same thing happens with medical examiners and prosecutors, et cetera. And it causes huge problems because it can create very negative consequences for the involved officers, the involved trainers and supervisors, and of course, the governmental entities that employed that, those officers. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. I would like to invite you to attend Prima's ERM training in San Diego, California, November 14th and 15th. Here are some words from Prima's ERM faculty member, Tim Wiseman, regarding the value of Prima's ERM training program. Well, I think we find ourselves today in a very complex environment, not only with the global marketplace, but the advancement of technology and communications, uh, both public and private sector entities and organizations are really wrestling with how to process information about vulnerabilities and risks that are associated with their objectives and goals and strategies. So there's sort of a general understanding and realization that some of the older practices in risk management may have been adequate at the time, but there's sort of a need to step up the game and take a more holistic approach. And I think that's the door that's opening and has opened for organizations, both public and private sector, to embrace uh, an enterprise-wide risk management approach. To learn more about Prima's ERM training, visit primacentral.org. Now back to Michael and Taekwon. Please go through a timeline of an ARD and its aftermath and explain the concerns with each individual involved with examples. All right. First, you have a dispatcher who receives a call or a complaint or something about an incident occurred, such as, here's an example of one, from a 10-year-old boy scared out of his mind. My daddy is freaking out. He just, he just went off the wall. He, he's, he's throwing things around the house. He just went outside. Uh, officer response, or officer, a de- actually a deputy sheriff, was then dispatched to respond. So we have the dispatcher involved. We have the deputy sheriff now involved. And hopefully there's a supervisor, if the agency is large enough, listening to this. Let's go through them first. 
what training has the dispatcher had on identifying the issues that are associated with the restroom-related death that we just talked about? And if you look at the little boy said, my dad just flipped out, freaked out, etc., and went outside, and then he also gave some other clues, too, like he was inappropriately dressed for the weather, etc. Okay, now what did the dispatcher do to act on that? Well, if the dis- dispatcher has never been trained on it, then the dispatcher doesn't know what to do. So the dispatcher doesn't know how to deal with it. So therefore, the dispatcher says, uh, we have a complaint of a disorderly individual at this address. Single deputy sheriff go out there and deal with it. Okay, so we've now missed our opportunity with the dispatcher. Well, now as the deputy sheriff is on his 22-minute drive out to this location, the, the wife of the, of the gentleman and the mother of the son calls the police frantic and afraid. My God, my, father, my, my husband had seizures last night. He didn't have his meds, and now he's throwing things around, destroying the house. We need help. Okay. What did the dispatcher relate to the deputy? Step it up. There's a problem. But there's still only one deputy going out there. What did, the de- what did the dispatcher fail to identify? What the dispatcher failed to identify was, has that dispatcher ever been trained in post-ictal psychosis, in other words, psychosis after a seizure, and this man was an epileptic. She identified that he was off of his seizure medications, and she identified that he was in a very agitated uh, post-ictal state. So if you know what you're looking for, the clues were there. So is this a criminal problem or a medical emergency? The dispatcher, if they'd been received the training in this, they would know this is a medical emergency. And number two is this person is likely to be out of control. And number three is you are not going to be able to control this person with a single deputy. And number four, since it's a medical emergency, are ambulance and EMS rolling right now? And again, the answer is no, because the dispatcher wasn't properly trained. Now let's go to if the dispatcher had been properly trained on these issues, let's go to the deputy sheriff. While the deputy sheriff is on his 22-minute ride out there, he, if when this new information from the wife and mother come in, the dispatcher should have looked it up. In other words, the dispatcher, again, this is once in, one in their career as well. But those key phrases, seizure, off meds, freaked out, should have, well, wait a minute, where, where, do I, where have I heard that? They look up their reference material. Their reference material says, oh, noncompliance with seizure meds, post-dictal psychosis, here's the problem. Boom. And those do exist. So then what should the dispatcher do? The dispatcher should immediately get to a supervisor and get to the officer who's heading out there and say, okay, here's what I think we have based upon these communications with the family. Now, how is that officer going to go out there? Is he going to go out there thinking this guy is high on drugs, thinking this guy has just gone berserk? or thinking this guy is in serious need of medical attention, and to know that this is not a criminal matter. So that's what could have happened. However, the officer gets there, and he doesn't know any of that, because the dispatcher wasn't thoroughly trained on these issues. By the way, in this particular case, I actually asked the head of dispatch, well, why wasn't the dispatcher up on these issues? And the response I got was, my God, you know how much traditional training we'd have to put into our dispatchers to cover all these issues? We can't afford that. Okay, so the the solo deputy sheriff gets out there. He has no backup at present, and he has no EMS or ambulance on its way, and he is confronted by this man who is inappropriately dressed in the front lawn, 
looking at things that are not there, talking to things that are not there, sweating profusely, and exercising his muscles and clenching his fists. So the officer's thinking, I have to get this person under control. I have to do it now, and this is a problem. The officer pulls out his expandable baton, tells him to get down, get down on the ground, get down on the ground. The officer doesn't. And so the officer takes a swing at him and misses. But when, he, when the man moved his head back or moved his shoulders and upper torso back and the officer missed, the expandable baton came around and hit the officer in his own head. So therefore, he is now sweating profusely. And he's also almost unconscious with his lightheaded. So what does he do? He calls for emergency, officer in distress, uh, bleeding profusely, get me an ambulance and EMS, and back up immediately. All right? Now, what do all of those people think coming out there? Well, they all think that this, this man attacked the officer, which he didn't, but that's what they think. And so, therefore, they're running out there to get this violent assault of individual under control and get him to the jail, while at the same time they're going out there to help the deputy. And the EMS and ambulance are going out there to treat the deputy. Okay. Well, that's a problem because now they're focusing on the wrong person. So now everybody arrives. The subject is taken into custody and put in handcuffs with no muss, no fuss. He's stuck in the back of a squad car and then taken to jail leisurely, which means wasn't rushed or expedited, whereas EMS and ambulance go to treat the deputy, not the subject, whereas had the EMS and ambulance known about off-seizure meds, had seizures, post-ictal psychosis, etc., that's who they would have gone to immediately to, to take care of him. Well, he gets to the jail, and the report coming into the jail is that this man had attacked this officer and hurt him badly, so now at this large jail where they're taking him, the large squad of very large deputies is there to meet him to put him in a restraint chair. Well, that exacerbates this worse because he fights against those restraints, etc., well, so therefore, they're still all thinking that this man is either high on drugs or something else because the dispatcher did not understand what to do in the beginning. It wasn't relayed, and the deputies didn't understand and never knew what was going on with this person, which could have easily been uh, communicated. We now have multiple minutes of huge struggle by multiple deputies putting him in a restraint chair. Well, then he goes non-responsive. Well, a nurse, a male nurse comes in and checks the carotid. Yeah, he's still got a pulse. And then a few couple, within a couple minutes, the pulse goes away, which happens a lot in these cases. And then he says, I need a, I need a defibrillator, a cardiac monitor. Well, the cardiac monitor was three locked doors away by three different sets of keys. And in all three of those, somebody else had the different keys. So therefore, they couldn't get a defibrillator or cardiac monitor to him in a timely basis. And of course, also, then we had to take the two or three minutes it took to get him out of the restraint chair. Well, then multiple medical personnel got to him and tried to treat him, and they ended up putting three cardiac monitors on him. Okay. Well, we're now in the investigation phase. Did anybody bother to collect the downloads both data download from the incident as well as maintenance download from those devices. No, they didn't. Why not? Again, because they didn't know. They've never dealt with one of these in the past. They didn't know what to do with it. Well, when the lawsuits came flying about a year, six months to a year later, did they go back and try to collect those data downloads? Sure, they did. However, what happened? They were all gone by then. So therefore, that evidence was lost forever. 
So now we have an investigative problem because the investigators didn't know what to collect. And therefore, they didn't collect it, and that objective evidence went off into evidence oblivion. Now, now this goes to the medical examiner. Well, the medical examiner at that time had not researched these issues either. So therefore, they did sort of an autopsy, but a lot of the different potential characteristics or attributes they did not take into consideration. And so that did not come into play. Well, then they came out with their opinions to a degree of possibility. And, of course, the differences could be categorized as possible, probable, to a reasonable degree of certainty, clear and convincing, beyond a reasonable doubt, etc. And their, their, their opinions are supposed to be to a reasonable degree of medical and scientific certainty, supported by the competent scientific medical literature. But they wrote it to possibility. So then this goes to the prosecutor. Well, the pros- and, oh, but of course, the medical examiner put it down as homicide because medical coroner cause of death homicide is not the same as legal homicide, even though most people don't understand that distinction. So now what do we have? We have a homicide. It was contributed to or caused by the deputies and the officers. And then, of course, we have a major lawsuit for millions of dollars, and we also have huge problems inside the jail, and we also have problems with a couple of the particular deputies who were accused of wrongdoing. So that goes to the potential prosecutor to make a determination as to whether or not they're going to criminally prosecute these officers. So when you look at this, lack of knowledge, and the, but again, let's back up here. If you want to find blame for this, you have to back off and understand happened less than once per career on average for all involved, often have a very deep, deep learning curve on all these issues. So you can't hold any of these people to a perfection standard, but a lot of people in our society, including some plaintiff's attorneys and some protesters, etc., do. So those are the various elements that play into this. And if you want to, you can get all the way to coroner's inquest. You can get to expert witnesses. You can get all the way through the civil and criminal trial processes. You can get through the discipline or termination of the officer. That is the whole line of all these people that are involved in this that do not know what we're talking about. Just as an example, I teach a lot for law enforcement. And when I teach this part, I just ask them real, real short, okay, tell me, what is SUDEP and how do you avoid it? How many hands go up? None. No matter what their rank, no matter what level they do. And again, because it happens so rarely. And then I say, well, what is it? Sickle cell exertional sudden death. And how do you deal with it when you identify it? And how many hands go up? None. To which a lot of people say, oh, that's not important. Really? then how come in 2010 the NCAA required mandatory testing for sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait of dark-skinned individuals? Because people in camps do die from this, just like they do in law enforcement custody and just like they do in scientific papers do exist. What can be done proactively to minimize or neutralize negative consequences associated with ARDs? Number one is get is identify that it is a potential, and I've got a bunch of other examples like that that I can give, but number one, identify that this does exist, it's incredibly rare, and then minimize the amount of training you have to give on this for your officers in order for them to identify it and appropriately and better deal with it. And for most of these, that does not take a lot of time. Number two is give them 
a one-page study aid on this particular issue. In other words, so that six, seven, 10, 15 years from now, when this thing happens, they go, oh, wait a minute, I did learn about that. Here's the study aid, and it refreshes their memory on how to deal with it. Because, again, they're so rare. If you're trained on something only once, you can't be expected to be able to be, use it, especially expertly, five, ten years later. The next thing is, when these things do occur, accept competent, reliable guidance or at least assistance or information from the outside. In other words, there are checklists that exist that when one of these ARDs happen, here is the evidence to collect in order to objectively be able to determine the cause or contribution to death at the end of this. Those do exist, but a lot of people, once the incident occurs, they shield themselves off and they will no longer accept those. So get those in advance. So another, so See, one of the problems here is when someone dies in custody, say from uh, autism-related, arrest-related death or suit-up, et cetera, certain people come in and say, oh, you need four days of training on that for every one of your officers. And because of that, then they, some agencies end up doing that four days of training. Well, as, with all the various issues that I identified, you can't do four days of training on each and every one of those, and you can't do it very often. So therefore, that's why you need to hone it down Exactly. What do you need? How do you reinforce it? How do you identify it at all levels from the dispatcher all the way through in order to hopefully get to a, a much better result and hopefully do whatever you reasonably can in order to avoid negative consequences? Why are ARDs ignored until an agency experiences one? It, it's like anything else. Uh, it's, just, it's just like diseases or securing your home or getting a car with more airbags, uh, until you've actually experienced one or been close to one, you, you basically uh, ignore it and don't act on it until it happens to you because they are so rare. And that's, that's understandable. That's human nature. But I suggest that either A, if your agency is big enough, get somebody who's passionate about this and start doing the research. If your agency is not big enough, then think about getting, example, take a county uh, or two or three rural counties that have maybe 15 or 20 police or law enforcement agencies for those three counties. Get together, pick a couple of people from that group and create a mutual aid agreement and have them go out and get the training so that they can come back and do the training program and also assist with the investigations and educational elements to this when they come back. And that's what that's the, the biggest thing that can be done because obviously a small department with five officers isn't going to be up on this, chances are, unless they have just experienced one. Then, of course, they will. So the, the first one is if your agency is big enough, do the best you can to be as up on the, the science, the literature, the investigation, et cetera, as possible. And number two, if your agency is, is a smaller agency, or like here where we're talking prima risk management pools, put together some pool-wide training on this as efficiently and effectively as possible, but be sure to do it in such a way to provide checklists, guidance, awareness, and also the be able to more thoroughly investigate it. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks so much, Michael and Taekwon. Please visit the Prima website to listen to other Prima podcasts, join upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about additional Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Enjoy the rest of your day.